All right, get those Bibles out. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. I would love to hear those pages turn. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a paperback one right there in front of you. If you don't own it, that's our gift to you this morning. When you get to Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, say glory to God. All right, sounds like most of us are there. Upon the conclusion of the reading of the text, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and you respond with? Awesome. Beginning in verse 13, follow along, have your eyes on this book. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistle? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're excited that you're here. We've got a lot going on, and today we end an 18-week, 18-sermon journey um, that we have taken through the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached because it was preached by God himself. And I tell you what, we've covered a lot of things. Uh, we talked about everything you're not supposed to talk about in church, from money, sex, politics, to the whole gambit. And so it has been a really exciting time. And if you have, if, if, if today's your first day here, you're kind of at the end of an 18-week journey, but it's really a terrific Sunday to be here because Jesus is really summarizing everything that he has taught us through the Sermon on the Mount. And what we see here is really Jesus' teaching on what basic, true Christianity is. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does this look like? And Jesus really breaks this down for us today. And he talks about a number of things, and he really does it in pairs. He talks about two roads, two gates, two trees, two builders building their house, and he compares and he contrasts on them. And at the end of the sermon, when he had finished saying all these things, as the text said, it was read to you, people were astonished. They were shocked. The word astonished there in the Greek is very strong. People literally took a breath because Jesus was teaching not like everyone else taught. And so maybe if, if you're not a Christian or someone peeking over the fence at Christianity, today's a great day for you because you're going to find out what we're about. What is Jesus really about? But maybe as a way of introduction, this will be helpful. 
This is a picture of one of my favorite poets, uh, a man by the name of Robert Frost. You probably heard of him and wrote a paper on him in high school and read some poems that you thought were extremely boring. Um, but I'm a nerd. Some guys lift weights and hunt, and I read poetry. So, hey, welcome to Westside. Glad you're here. Okay? And so one of his most famous poems by far is entitled, The Road Less Taken. And this is how the poem goes. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and I'm sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveler long I stood... And looked down one as far as I could, to where it bent under the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, its leaves not step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing, how, yet knowing how way leads on to way. I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and it has made all the difference." I think that poem is appropriate because it sounds very much so about what Jesus is saying in this passage. There's actually a backstory, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story about this poem. A lot of people think that it's just about a choice that he had to make in life, took a different path. But at the very last stanza, he says that I shall be telling this with a sigh. And that sigh is actually a heartbroken sigh. Robert Frost went over to England and lived there for three years. While he was there, he met a man in the town by the name of Edward Thomas. And this is a picture of Edward. Edward was a struggling writer as well, and they would take walks in the woods together. And Edward would get to talk to Robert Frost about how to write poems and suggestions on that. He was actually a very troubled young man. Uh, He troubled a lot with depression And he had a decision to make. Either he was going to be a full-time writer or he was going to do something else. The war kicked up and he entered into the war. And the date is on Easter Monday, 1917. Edward was killed in action. And you can actually go and see his gravestone there. Robert Frost, every time that he would read the poem publicly, would say these words. You have to be careful about this one. It's a very tricky one. Very misunderstood, you see. And Robert would say that the poem is about both of them. That Edward didn't have enough courage in his life to do what his heart desired him to do. And he took a road that ultimately ended in death. And Robert Frost took a road less traveled by. You say, Jason, what does that have to do with today? Well, that's actually really what Jesus breaks down for us in this passage today. He ends the Sermon on the Mount and tells us, here's the distinction between everything else in the world. There are two paths. There are two ways to know this in your life. And there's really two ways to do this. And oftentimes, Christianity is the road less taken. You see, because Jesus actually says in these verses that not many people are going to find this. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many people travel that path. But the path that I am walking for you, actually only few people find it. So what is Jesus going to show us today? 
Jesus is going to show us that true Christianity cannot be neutral. True Christianity can't be negotiated. And true Christianity is deeply, deeply relational. So we'll take the first one. True Christianity can't be neutral. Do you see what he says there in verse 13? Have your eyes on scripture so you know I'm not making this up. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. I really love what Jesus is doing here. Because here's what we do in 2018, right? Because we're so advanced, right? The Bible, really, Jason? Right? I got an iPhone in my pocket, bro. I can Google anything in the world. You're teaching out of an old book. Jesus lived so long ago. And here's what people like to say now in 2018. They don't like to say they're Christian, but they like to do this phrase. I'm spiritual. To my response is, what does that even mean, man? <laughs> right? What are you even saying right now? Right? So people are like, I'm a spiritual person. Or, nah, I'm not really like that. Jesus is cool. And here's what Jesus is teaching. Actually, in reality, no one is neutral in life. See, a lot of people like to think that they're indifferent to Christianity or that they're indifferent to spirituality or that they're indifferent to an idea of God. But Jesus doesn't give you that option. Now, we have to read this like Jesus taught it, and his first century hearers would hear this. Jesus doesn't give you that option. And if I could just sort of um, combat your argument, because I know you're good people sitting in your pews arguing with the preacher. It's okay. It's all right, right? And some of you are saying the idea of God. God, Jason, right? It's 2018. We have science now, right? Yeah, but you still got to take your thermometer and your temperature underneath your armpit. You know what I'm saying, right? So we're not that advanced in the world, really. And really, honestly, if you could, I would say this sentence. Everyone is living by faith. Everyone. Because the reality is, if you're saying that you don't believe in an idea of God, you have another world view which you base everything off of. Whether that be science, whether that be philosophy, whether that be anything. And what you are doing is you are putting one foot in front of the other and walking down a path. And we actually have a word for that, and it's called faith. So you can't say you're a person who is not of faith because everybody is living on some sort of faith. And the reality is is the idea of, well, then prove God to me. Okay, I'm going to ask you another question. Show me love. Prove love to me. Prove it. Well, you know, they say that love is the same amount of of, of eating large amounts of chocolate and it releases the dopamines in your brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Show me why a man married for 60 years would feed his wife in a nursing home. Show me that. Prove that to me. Because Darwin would say that's a waste of time, bro. You see what I'm getting at? No one is neutral and everyone is walking down a path and you do not have the option to say that you are not living by faith. Everyone is living by faith. But here's what Jesus lays before you. Where is your faith? What's it in? And then he says that Christianity is, it's narrow, narrow, right? I, for one, love the idea when I get called narrow-minded. 
because Jesus kind of says Christianity is narrow. You know what I'm saying? So he says that this path is not really that broad, right? That not many people are going to sign up for this. And really what Jesus is saying is that Christianity is a lot like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Because I don't know where you thought I was going with that, okay? Right? Walk a journey with me, okay? You remember Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory? Not the weird one with Johnny Depp. That one's freaky, okay? Right? I'm talking about the original with Gene Wilder, man, the good one, you know? Do you remember when they're going into the factory and they walk up to that little bitty door, right? That little bitty bitty door. And they're so confused. They're like, this is Willy Wonka. This is the factory. This is everything. And he talks to them about, in here, it's different. Don't judge things by how they look. But it's all about the experience here. So experience this. And then he opens that tiny, tiny door that leads them into the bigness of what is the factory itself. Jesus is saying on one side of the gate, Christianity does appear to be small. It does appear to be narrow. But listen, don't miss this. But when you enter in through experience and you walk through that gate, you understand the broadness that everything that God has to offer. One famous author by the name of G.K. Chesterton says it this way, and I believe that he sums up well as to why not many people walk down this narrow path. He says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found lacking. It has been tried and found difficult, therefore not tried again. I love that. Christianity has never, listen, if you think you're so advanced, Christianity has satisfied some of the greatest minds since the beginning of time. Christianity has never been tried and found lacking. It has been tried and found difficult, therefore people hit the eject button on it. But what Jesus is saying is when you enter in through the gate of experience, then you'll understand the broadness that everything that I have to offer you. So listen, Christianity is everything but neutral. It has a destination and it has a path. No one can be neutral. And then here's the great argument. This is the great argument that offended Brad Pitt, right? He's good looking, but his theology is wacko, okay, right? This is the argument that offended Oprah, right? You get a car, you get a car. I'm sorry, we don't, you don't do that here at Westside, okay, right? This is what is really, there's only one way to God. That seems to be so narrow-minded and so bigoted. But I would ask you to look at the question from a different way. Yes, Jesus is the only way to God, but there are many ways to Jesus. And that's the good news about Christianity. The profound question is not, is there only one way to God? The profound question is, I can't even believe that there's a way to God. Because we are a fallen, broken humanity. And if we had time to pass a microphone to say, where did you find Jesus? Some people would say, with a needle in my arm in a hotel room. Some people would say, I found Jesus in a hospital when the doctor said that it was cancer. Some people would say, I found Jesus and I grew up in a great home and my parents taught me. There are so many ways in which Jesus encounters us in this journey. But yes, dear friends, the one way to experience the true and living God is through the person of Jesus Christ. Christianity cannot be neutral. And the second thing is this, true Christianity is non-negotiable. It's non-negotiable. It's not like, ooh, Sermon on the Mount. 
loved chapter 5. Loved chapter 5. Chapter 6 was kind of long and Jesus was kind of angry, but he really picked it back up in chapter 7. I really love that. You, you can't do that. And look at what he says. Beware of false prophets. Now, everybody always loves to talk about the tree and its fruit. But Jesus is, like, have your eyes on Scripture. Use the Bible. God forbid we come to church and open up our Bible. That would be a profound concept, right? What Jesus is showing is he's using the illustration of the tree and its fruit to teach you about false prophets. So I read page after page after page on commentaries about the tree and its fruit. And I was like, he's talking about the false prophets here. He's trying to show you this. And what Jesus is saying is there will be people that will come after me who will say, ah, you don't really, no, here's what Jesus really meant to say in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, you'll know them, you'll know them by their fruits. And isn't it interesting? The greatest attack on the church, the greatest attack on Christianity is never from the outside. Anytime you have an attack on a group of people from the outside, it always unifies the people on the inside, right? The greatest attack in the church and on Christianity comes from within the church, always. Listen to me. I don't think atheism is the greatest threat to Christianity. I believe apathy in the church is the greatest threat to Christianity. Because we have people who claim the name of Christ who say that I believe that God came in the form of a human and, by the way, was born of a virgin. Mind blow, right? What? Right? Really lived, really died, and really rose again. And I'm just kind of, eh, on that news. You know, I love Jesus, but I'm mad about it. And I look like I was baptized in lemon juice, okay, right? Real mad at the world and everything. And what Jesus is saying is, you'll be able to tell. Um, when my family and I, we uh, purchased our second home whenever we were having more babies because we needed more room. It was a profound concept. And so we hadn't been in the house that long. And uh, I, I love mowing my lawn. I don't know if anybody else is like that. But I love mowing it because it's the only thing that I can really show in my life that I started and finished. You know what I'm saying? Like nothing else is ever done in my life. Nothing is ever completed or done. But man, after I take a shower and I stand in front of that window and look at that lawn, I go, I did that, man. I did that. I started it and I finished it. It was like the second or third time that I was mowing the lawn there at my home and I was mowing it and I thought it sounded like I ran over a cinder block. I was like, oh, I was on a riding lawnmower. I mean, just shut the thing down. I thought, great. I looked under the mower, couldn't find anything. And then I found, I didn't know what it was, so I took it out of the mower. It shut everything down. And I looked at it, and I was like, this is like, this is a piece of fruit. Like, what, did I just get drive-by fruited in my house? Or I don't know what. And then I realized we got a tree in our yard. And I didn't know what the tree was. And that thing was a big fat pear that I had rode over in the riding lawnmower. And I was like, we got a pear tree in the front lawn. This is great. Now, question, question. This is real deep theology here, okay? Real deep. How did I know that was a pear tree? How did I know that that was a pear tree? I ran over a pear, right? Jelly on the bottom shelf here. Jesus says there are practical ways that you can know that there are marks of a Christian, fruit, if you will. I'm only going to go over the two, the non-negotiables. The first one is this, the fruit of repentance. 
repentance. If I could summarize every sermon, like the Old Testament prophets plagiarized one another over and over and over again. And you know what the Old Testament message was? Repent, repent. You would get a guy, repent, and Israel would be like, oh man, we're so far away from God, we gotta repent. And then God would send them somebody else and go, repent. And I know what you're saying, oh Jason, that's the Old Testament, that's the Old Testament. Well, God sends another prophet, John, And he says this in the book of John, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You're saying, yeah, Jason, that's John, though. What about Jesus, right? Because Jesus was like a lost member of the Beach Boys. White guy, right? Peace, love. You know what I'm saying? Jesus was all loved. You know what Jesus' first recorded sermon was that we have? You know, well, we'll throw it up on the screen. I'm glad you asked. It says this, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, many of you grew up in a tradition where, right, the guy preached, he banged the pulpit. He said that he loved Jesus, but he was real mad about it. And his favorite sermon was, repent, right? Uh." You know what the word repent means? Change of direction. Change of direction. And you know how Jesus is teaching this in this passage? The same way as if you saw your son and your daughter running out into traffic. He's saying, repent. Don't go that way. Don't go that way. As a loving father beseeches his children, he says, don't go that way. But you can't just have repentance. You have to have belief. They're one coin with different sides. So if someone's only teaching repentance, they're teaching a half gospel. And if someone is only teaching belief, they're only teaching a half gospel. So we have to change the direction and believe in something else. Change the path. And we'll see people do that in just a moment through baptism. They're saying, I'm changing that direction and I'm trusting Jesus Christ. And listen, this isn't a one-time gig. Martin Luther, one of the fathers of the Protestant Reformation, the first line in his 95 thesis is, all of the Christian life is repentance. Every day I wake up and beg God to change my mind and change the direction. Because the heart is desperately wicked and who can understand it? The fruit of repentance in our life. And listen, parents and married couples, here's one of the most profound things that can change your home. You ready? Look up here. Ready? It's these words. I'm... Sorry. I'm sorry. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But then the second one, the fruit of faith in Christ alone. That's the other direction that we're heading. That's the whole point. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, he is the king. So it's not just repentance. We're not just changing our direction. Remember, we're not neutral. You don't just change your direction and stay in one spot. You're heading a different path. And that is in faith in Christ alone. Nothing else. Listen, here's the greatest math problem ever in the world. Are you ready for this? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus something equals nothing. 
So listen to me. If you put anything in front of Jesus, if you put Jesus and baptism, Jesus and speaking in tongues, Jesus and this, Jesus and church membership, that is a false gospel. It is only Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, but it is a gift of God so that no man may boast. You, The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that hung him there. God does everything else. It is faith in Christ alone and nothing else. And it is not in your performance. Because listen, if you think this thing depends on you, you are exhausted. And Jesus assures us when he teaches us this principle. In John 15, he says these words, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Man, Jesus, I wish you would explain that. Verse 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And this is one of my life verses. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Apart from me, you can do something. Apart from me, you can do a little. Negative. Apart from me, let's do it in 2018 in Butler County terms. Apart from me, you can do jack nothing. Nothing. And it is only in Christ. So what am I trying to say? It's this. You don't negotiate with the king. And some of you think this is how you come to Christ. And listen, I am weary for your soul. For your soul. Because you don't come to a king and say, I'll be a part of your kingdom, but let me keep this. But we come and we bow the knee and we open up our hands. Nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. You don't negotiate. You bow the knee and you say, all that I have has always been yours. So my life is no longer mine. My dating, my money, my sexuality, none of that is mine. It is yours. You don't negotiate with the king. But that's not all. Oh, I'm so thankful that that's not just the end of Christianity and that's just not the end of what Jesus teaches. You see, true Christianity is deeply relational. It's a relationship. And see, that's what Jesus is actually teaching in these verses. Now, on the surface, listen, these verses are scary, bro. Okay, just straight up. I'm not going to relieve that tension. Jesus says, on that day, there will be many people who will try to give me knuckles and the pound sign and a handshake and be like, Jesus. And he'll be like, come again. Who who are you? Oh, man, remember we did the fundraiser? We did the thing? I was at church on Christmas and Easter. Right? I was a CEO Christian, baby. Christian and Easter only. What's up? Jesus, let me in this mug. And I will say to them, depart from me. For I never knew you. Listen to me. If you can read these verses and not weep over them, I am weary for you. 
But then he tells us the difference. You can't have those verses alone without the verses about the two houses and the two builders. Don't, ta- don't scare people with these, man. Teach them. Teach the Bible. And Jesus says, here's the difference. And look, here's the difference. Look at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. Jesus actually uses the word idiot here in the Greek, which I love. So Jesus calls people idiots. This is fantastic, right? An idiot who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now, we need to clarify two things. The storm. What's the storm? I've heard preachers say, when the storms of finances come in your life, brother, when the storms of suffering come, right? That may be true. Jesus is talking about judgment because the preceding verses when he says, on that day, trace it in the Gospels, Every time Jesus says, on that day, he is speaking of the day of judgment. So this isn't just about finances or suffering or anything like that. Though that is true, if you want to test faith, you test it in the fire, and it it shall come forth like gold. But Jesus is talking about true Christianity. So what is the aspect that is deeply relational? Well, the first thing is this. Jesus says, obedience is the evidence of faith. Two builders. Two houses, side by side, they look the exact same on the outside. Exact same. The external looks the same. But Jesus says there's a profound difference. And the first one is he who hears these words of mine and does them, builds his house on the rock. So Jesus is saying obedience is the evidence of faith. Obedience is the evidence of faith. That when you obey, do you really trust me? Jesus is saying, do you? Then trust me with your money. Trust me with your dating life. Trust me with your kids. Do you really love me? Then trust me with everything that you have. But here's what I need to do. I need to be careful with this. Because we could end the sermon now and I could pray and I would send you off like little Pharisees going outside going, I obeyed, I obeyed, I obeyed. And you would have a little behavior check mark. And some of you would put little stars next to your name and go, well, I need a cookie today. I prayed and read my Bible. I obeyed, right? Obedience is the evidence of faith, but be careful. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Look at the verse. Meditate on it. Look at it for a second. Here's what Jesus does not say. If you obey my commandments, then I'll love you. Love always comes before obey. Question, when did Jesus give the Israelites the Ten Commandments? After he saved them out of Egypt. He didn't come to them in Egypt and go, hey, Don't drink, don't cuss, don't chew, and don't go with girls that do, and I'll save you out of Egypt, okay? He saved them by his own grace and mercy. And then he said, because of my great love for you that I saved you out of slavery, 
now live this way. Listen, we don't tell people to behave first. We tell people to believe upon Christ and his grace. And that belief and that love and that grace, that is what produces obedience in light of that. And so Jesus is teaching, yes, obedience is the evidence of faith. And most scholars believe the difference in both of the houses is what? The foundation. You can't see a foundation. And most scholars believe, like, let's walk through this. Let's go to construction class. You ready? They're building a house. They build. They do everything, right? What's the one thing that the builder who built the proper home that withstood judgment did not have to build the foundation, the rock. And most scholars believe that that rock is grace because you did not die upon Calvary, but Christ did. And we have to get deep into that relationship with Jesus. We have to let him have all access. So yes, obedience is the evidence of faith, but this is really what's profound is acceptance in Christ produces obedience to Christ. You cannot mistake those things. This is what true Christianity is. This is the relationship. I'll forever be indebted to Pastor Tim Keller who opened my eyes to the difference between religion and a relationship. And some of you think you have a relationship, but you actually have religion. And and, and this is what he talks about. Let's throw this graphic up here. Here's what religion says. I obey, therefore I am accepted. I prayed, I read my Bible, I gave, therefore God is pleased with me. But the gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Do you see the profound difference? Religion says, my motivation is based on fear and insecurity. Because if I pray, go to church, serve once a month in the nursery, not twice, because God, that'd be a lot. But if I just did it once, then I would have a lot that I could say, God, I did this, so keep my family safe. And so my motivation is always fear and insecurity. But in the gospel, my motivation is based on grateful joy. Because nothing in this world can separate me from my love with Christ. That's the difference between grace and fear. Religion says, I obey God in order to get things from God. Listen to your prayers. I obey God to get things from God. Prosperity, money, health, all of those things. None of those things are bad. I mean, if you've got a big bag of cash, I'll take a couple bucks. That's great, okay? But listen. We don't obey God to get things from God. We obey God to get God. That's the whole point of following Christ. The whole point of following Christ is not just to go to heaven. The point of following Christ is Christ himself. That's the whole point of the gospel. And then religion says, when things go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself. Since I believe that anyone who is good or deserves a comfortable life. You see, we categorize the world in good and bad. Those are good people. Those are bad people. These are good people. These are bad people. Bad things should not happen to good people. The Bible has two categories of people. Sinners and then sinners in Christ who are called saints. That's it. And so what the gospel says is when things go wrong, I struggle. 
Oh God, I struggle. That's a great part for an amen. I'm going to read it one more time, okay? When things go wrong, I struggle. Hashtag the struggle's real, bro. But I know all my punishment fell on Jesus and that God will care for me as a father in my trial. Listen to me, Christians, look up here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Jesus and God do not punish their followers, okay? There's a profound difference in discipline and punishment. God disciplines us to make us like Christ. And then look at the response. Look at verse Matthew 7, 28 through 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Do you know what I love about the ending on the Sermon on the Mount? You cannot leave here today and go, man, Sermon on the Mount, that's powerful stuff. And then continue living a certain way. Jesus doesn't give you the option. You cannot put him in the class of good moral teacher. The first century people that heard this were literally astonished because he spoke with one who had authority. Question, do you know the etymology of where we get the word authority? Author. Jesus spoke as one as though he was the writer of the story. For he is. So how can we end this 18-week journey? How can we end it and how can I summarize this for you? I want to end it this way. My wife and I have been watching a TV show called The Crown on Netflix. It's one of the most expensive TV shows that have ever been made. Second season's kind of blah. First season's really good, okay? So, but the cool thing is it's about the story of Queen Elizabeth, who is actually still queen right now. I mean, this lady is like as old as Methuselah, man. I mean, she is still the queen. Long live the queen. I mean, it's like, it's awesome. And so it shows her taking the throne. And history records that she was sort of thrust in to the monarchy because her father, King George, the beloved king of England, died unexpectedly from what they believe now to be lung cancer. She finds out she's actually in Africa and she's doing a tour and she finds out that King George had passed away. George was loved by England. England called him the king's people, the people of the king. And she is now thrusted into this monarchy. And she finds out, and she's on a plane, and they're on their way back to England, and she's going to land in England as the queen for the very first time. And it all becomes very real to her when people start bowing to her on the plane and saying, long live the queen. But it really happens, and the show shows it so poetically, when her husband is getting ready to walk off the plane. Because before, he would walk off first, and he would walk out, and then she would follow. And she's putting on this dress, and she's getting ready to walk off the plane and put on the crown for the very first time. And as they begin to walk off the plane, her husband goes to take the lead, and the assistant goes, Sir... You cannot go first. And the husband looks at him in this profound questionable on his face. And the assistant says this phrase. Don't miss this. Sir, you cannot go first. The crown takes precedence. And he steps back. And the queen walks off the plane first. And if I could summarize Christianity for you, it is this. True Christianity means that the crown takes the lead in your life. 
that the crown of Jesus Christ goes first in my finances, in my marriage, in my dating life, in my business, in everything, in my parenting. Everything, the crown of Christ goes first. And if there is a kingdom of God, and if there is a king, that king is Jesus, and we bow our knee. So Westside, let us be a people who are astonished at Jesus' words. And let us be a people who live a life that the crown takes the lead. The band's going to come up and lead us in a time of response. And we're going to partake in communion. But at the communion table, as a reminder and a token for you, for this 18-week journey that we've been on, there's a bowl. And in that bowl, there's a crown jewelry. And I want you per household, one per household, to take that. Put it on your car keys. Put it on the refrigerator. Put it somewhere. So this crown can constantly be a reminder that true Christianity means that the crown takes the lead in our life. I'm going to end with these words from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones as he sums up what true Christianity is. Westside, hear these words today. This is the man who builds his house upon the rock. He is a man who desires and prays for holiness and who strives after it who does his utmost to be holy because his supreme desire is to know Christ, not only to be forgiven, not only to go to heaven, but to know Christ now, to have Christ as his brother, to have Christ as his companion, to be walking with Christ in the light now, to enjoy the foretaste of heaven here in this world. This is the man who builds his house upon the rock. He is the man who loves God for God's sake and whose supreme desire and concern is that of God's name and God's glory that may be magnified and spread abroad in his life now. This is the Christian whose love is for Christ and for Christ alone. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and our desire is that the crown would take the lead in our life. Nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to the cross we cling. We build our life upon the rock, and the rock being Christ, it being grace. Our acceptance is our motivation. We don't obey so you'll love us. You love us so then we obey. God, I pray that you would open the hearts and minds of many in this room today who are under the facade that they have a relationship when really they have a religion. May the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ soften hardened hearts today. We pray this in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand right where you're at and partake in communion as you feel led today?